Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dinkman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. Today, we are discussing a book with the provocative title of Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It by Tomas Chamorro Permusic. It's a very provocative title. It is related to an article that the Harvard Business Review published a few years ago by the same title that gets recycled every time people get annoyed about gender diversity in leadership. It is provocative and insightful. The book I think is really, really useful for thinking about why how we choose leaders matters so much. The basic question that drives drives the book is why do we have so many conversations about bad leadership? Like bad leadership seems to be everywhere. We've all worked with bad leaders and heard complaints about leadership. Is it just that leadership so hard or is there something else going on? And then also why is it so hard for women to get into the leadership space? And the question that Tomas asks is, are those related? And the answer is that he says, yes. And so I think that's where I'd like to start. What is the connection here? Yeah, I can jump in. I love this book, first of all. And I think as far as books that we've read, because of the premise that you laid out, it's one of the books that most fundamentally changed a way of thinking for me. I think Mm. uh, many books we read are additive to our study of leadership and have some interesting things. This one, especially if you have never read the HBR article or haven't seen the TED talk, if you read it, there is like a, whoa, I've been thinking about this the wrong way kind of feeling, at least for me, that was really prevalent and and really cool. And, And you're right. He sees those two as linked. It made me think that we're kind of throwing our resources at the wrong problem when we're doing leadership development sometimes. In in particular, women's leadership and let's get women into leadership roles. I think that the way that Chamorro talks about it is women in leadership positions isn't the means to an end. That's the end. And there's a different means that gets you to that end, which is redefine how you think about leadership. And when you redefine how you think about leadership and what gets people into leadership positions, then naturally we will have more women in leadership positions because we're valuing different things. And that's a, that's a pretty, I think, big shift for a lot of people. I liked how he made the links. I thought it was really provocative, like you said, um, and also really just logical. There are bad leaders everywhere and bad leadership everywhere. Like maybe we're thinking about leadership the wrong way and and attaching ourselves to the wrong things and the wrong traits. Even when we consciously say, especially on podcasts like this and other books, like (laughs) good leadership is empathy and good leadership is authenticity and humility and and knowing your people and valuing people. These are things subconsciously is that, is that who we're promoting to positions of leadership? It turns out no. And so there's a real hard look in the mirror that I think we all need to take and that I'm certainly taking after reading this book. 
fun. Yeah. That's kind of where I was. We do a lot of this work around growing leaders and growing leaders that are authentic to themselves. So not having to step into leadership traits that somebody else defines. And just hearing you articulate it that way, we do say this and we do help leaders grow and develop, but somewhere in the system, it's not breaking through. The traits that we champion, somehow when the actual selection of leaders happens, those aren't the traits that are rising to the top. So how do we approach that? And how do we change our perspective? And how do we help others and leaders and help organizations and organizational cultures shift in terms of what is leadership? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because there are a couple of spaces in leadership development where we work. And one is at the emerging leader level and at the how do we help women get into leadership and how do we help people claim their sense of leadership, particularly people who are struggling with imposter syndrome and that sort of thing. Like, how do we help people claim that voice? And that's sort of the work that you're talking about, Alyssa. And then the other space is people who are in places of leadership who are not naturally so good at these emotionally intelligent skills and the empathy and who the phrase, what got you here won't get you there, apply. And the argument that this book is basically making is we spend so much money on leadership development for people that we've promoted based on the what got you here that won't be effective, that actually we're promoting people whose skill set that gets them promoted is antithetical to being effective in the job. There's some pretty compelling stuff at the end of the book, which to me as a coach and leadership development person, I took, like, I know that this stuff is ineffective in so many cases, the work mm -hmm. that, that we do and selling what is effective is hard because it's really actually hard to change some of the things. And we could save all of that money. And yes, it would put a bunch of us out of work, but we could save all this money as businesses if we actually took the people who have already got the skills mm -hmm. that will help them be effective when they get into leadership, recognize them and put them into leadership. Yeah, because that would then fundamentally change using that might put a bunch of us out of work, possibly. And also those of us who, who have the work, we'd be doing a different kind of work then because yeah. we'd be working with the people, as you said, already have the fundamentals and have the skills to be successful. And, if, you know, they need other support or they need, you know, whatever. And, and, and so then the, the work becomes enhancing their existing skills versus taking people who got there without the fundamentals and trying to give them the fundamentals at a stage of their career where they're less likely to be able or willing to absorb it. So yeah, that first distinction of we promote the people who don't have the skills. And then we're like, why is there bad leadership? <laughs> why are people leaving and don't want to work for this leader? You know, I, I think one of the problems there too, is we talk about women's leadership and, and telling them to be more confident or lean in <laughs> as it were, but it's not great given what we know, which is that first of all, those things aren't necessarily going to be rewarded in women. I think it's, it's pretty well established that women who are confident and assertive and who make decisions quickly and such aren't perceived as competent the way that men are. And we're not necessarily setting them up for success. It helps to step back and think, are those the traits we really want in leaders? People who are, you know, overconfident and over assertive and, and maybe even 
even rash in some cases. I don't know that we we do. And so we may be arming otherwise competent people with the wrong skills in the name of more women in leadership. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really, really struck me in this is, so we've all seen studies that show, and then they're mentioned in this book as well, that show that there's a greater percentage of narcissists and psychopaths in mm-hmm. CEO roles than there is in the general population. Like, it's really interesting. Why do we reward these otherwise negative personality traits? Yeah. And and there's some data and it that narcissism and psychopathy are more prevalent in men. That's part of the connection. But one of the things that I found really, really great to have pointed out in this is women who are being trained to be successful in getting promoted are increasing the levels of narcissism that are recorded in women. So yeah. we're actually training women to be narcissists in order to get promoted. Yeah. Yeah. There were two things in while you were talking, the, the whole confidence thing, technical term, is <laughs> I love seeing the actual data that said there's no positive correlation between confidence and competence. Yeah. It's just that we make assumptions when we see people who seem very sure of themselves. So yes, there is value in helping someone who is very competent become more confident. And at the same time, it propagates that idea of having to be loud if you want to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Yes. And ignoring the ones that are a bit quieter because they're not fitting that idea of of confidence. So I liked actually seeing that sentence. There's no positive correlation. And he said really the same thing around the perception of charisma and leadership success that, Mm -hmm. you know, which one leads to the other and the way that we're wired to want to think well of ourselves. I think we're also wired to want to find belonging. And so sometimes those charismatic leaders give people that impression and then they start following that leader without asking any questions, without asking some really useful questions. They're just kind of mesmerized by that charismatic leader. Yeah, the confidence one is so interesting to me. At some point, I saw some work that established that confidence comes from being able to tell a coherent story. Hmm. And so if you can tell a coherent story about some thing that actually sort of puts a boundary on it that sort of says, I'm capable of doing this because this, that, and the other. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If it tells a good story, there's a certainty that comes. And so actually one of the things that I've done when I'm coaching people who are not feeling confident is to actually help them tell the story. So you can actually train yourself to look confident Mm -hmm. when you're not competent. Then the other piece that I find really fascinating is there's some data that shows that when women are giving presentations, if they're mindful, so if they're mindful of their embodied presence, the gender bias and how they're received disappears. So it's Mm. not that putting on a performance of confidence, putting on a performance of confidence comes across as arrogant. And we're used to sort of seeing that in guys and dismissing it as like manliness. Oh, yeah. Uh, Right? Like that's swagger. 
and and we're we've got this sort of like okay yeah like that's the guy masculine thing to do is to have this swagger but that's what comes off as obnoxious in women and it's actually the performative aspect of it if you drop the performative aspect of it and just have that embodied presence where you're fully yourself the bias disappears so it's yeah like it's super interesting how what we read in terms of how we interpret someone's behavior is so different yeah it is and and it's a reminder of how narrowly we define some of these things i think your embodied presence example is a great example of we very narrowly define confidence even to to be the you know sort of chest out show off arrogant thing and the person who can tell a good story whereas i think just being really present to who you are is its own form of confidence. And we rarely train that or, or value that. And then you mentioned too, that there's a way to train for confidence. And I think a lot of that goes back to the socialization. I think that the the training we're giving women and other leaders now to be more confident or charismatic or whatever is oftentimes the training that men, when they're growing up because of the world that we live in, they, they don't need special training because it's just, that's, that's what they get. <laughs> it's just kind of how, how how it is. And so it doesn't seem like the right solution necessarily to give that same training to women, because how are we ever going to get a different form of leadership if we're continuing to train for the same things? And, and, you know, back to the charisma point, I read something interesting about the people who get elected president uh, in the United States. And this isn't a political point that I'm about to make. It's actually a, a leadership and, and charisma kind of point. I read somewhere that it actually very little has to do with the politics of the person or at the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, it is the more charismatic and confident leader who gets elected. It actually does not matter what they stand for at all. And, and it was a really comprehensive article that looked back at the last, um, you know, 70, 80 years and showed that that was true in every single case. You know, it would go back and forth, Republican, Democrat, but that the the so-called confident and charismatic leader, the way that it's defined here and that we're talking about is the one who gets elected. And I think part of the point this book is trying to make is, but wait, like that, that might get you elected, <laughs> you know, but is that an indicator of a of a good solid effective impactful presidency like no no it's not and the places where those overlap is 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 small enough to where there's like no meaningful correlation like you said um Alyssa but the problem is i think competence is rarely seen in a flashy way the the, the way that confidence is like so visible you know i think competence you got to you got to do the work to look for it and to and to see that it shows up in these different ways sometimes humble sometimes in other ways and it takes work and 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 we don't want to do the work. And what I mean by that is our brains don't necessarily want to do that work. We, we go on instinct. And, and one of the points that I think this book makes is we got to question and retrain our instincts and not just jump to the thing that looks shiny and charismatic, but say, hang on, what is actually going to make this person effective as a leader in the medium and long term? And let's hunt for that. Yeah, because so much of effective leadership is measured like at the team level and it's subtle. So often a really powerful powerful, informal leader is recognized by all of the people that they work with as someone who shows up in ways that get the best out of everybody. And that often doesn't show up in ways where you can go into your performance review cycle and say, I did this and look how much impact I had on the bottom line. Whereas if you did a 360 review looking at their peers and all of the people they worked with, you would get, yes, these people are massively impactful. Yeah. In the learning to distrust our instincts, 
instincts, Nithya, you were mentioning. I love the part where he talks about hire moderate misfits. Yes. And <laughs> I personally really relate to that because really early in my career, I was making a switch from working in the theater to recruiting. So in my head to make that transition, I called it casting for the corporate world. And <laughs> I I had a lot of conversations with hiring managers trying to convince them certain people would be good in their open role that we can't judge them on exactly what they've done before. We can look at what they've done and judge their potential. And hiring for potential was a really difficult concept to yeah. express to these hiring managers. The idea of the behavioral interviewing, which I know is still used in a lot of places, you know, tell me about a time mm -hmm. that you did this or did that. But that idea that they haven't done what yeah. they're going to have an opportunity to do. So it's a shift as well in terms of how do we hire? Because again, we like to hire people that we agree with. I just really liked the phrase hire moderate misfits because that's what's going to help expand the opportunities and the potential. So hire for that potential and let people bring their authentic selves and their experiences into the organization and see what you can gain from that. Yeah, it really throws this notion of quote unquote culture fit on its head. And at the same time, it's not going to the extreme of hire people who are complete and total misfits, right? And they're saying moderate misfits because you still want people you'll get along with and, and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, the moderate misfit thing is super interesting. And then you mentioned behavioral interviewing. I just saw such a tie between that and the way Kate defined confidence, right? I mean, when we're doing behavioral interviewing, we're literally asking people to tell a coherent story. That's yep. what we're asking them to do quite literally is show me your confidence. And from that, I'm going to somehow infer competence, even though there's no correlation between the two. So yeah, it's baked right into our hiring process. I think we've all seen people who interview amazingly. Yeah. And then three months into the role, they're struggling for different reasons, but people that can absolutely excel at an interview, and that isn't actually an indication of their success in the role. Yeah, I am thinking about a time that I did hiring training for salespeople. And so these were new managers of salespeople. And what we were doing the whole time was trying to get people out of their instincts. I was like, you're looking for hiring salespeople. So they're going to try and sell you on their ability to do the job. They're selling themselves. And you don't actually want people who are capable of selling themselves. You want people who are capable of selling your product. And you want people that you're going to be able to work with. And you want people who are going to be coachable. And, and you want all of that. So it was particularly important to get under those instincts. Yeah. And I think one overall point that we're all kind of leading towards that this book makes is that these traits we're talking about around selling yourself and confidence and overconfidence, frankly, and arrogance and narcissism and charisma. One of the bigger points is that these traits are much more often seen in men than in women, and that that's what's actually contributing to the gender gap in leadership versus any of the other reasons I think that people may come up with. And, and I think that changes the conversation around the gender gap in leadership very fundamentally. I always used to get pretty frustrated when I'd hear people say things like, well, the reason we don't have more women in leadership is maybe they just don't want 
want it enough or, you know, they, they self-select out and all kinds of just ridiculous garbage, frankly. Um, And I love that this book just takes a really, really evidence-based approach to showing that there's actually a level underneath gender that is linked to gender and and is influenced by gender, but there's a level underneath that just has to do with the qualities and behaviors that we need in leadership and what we say we want to choose and what we end up choosing are often different. I don't think we'd ever, if we ask anybody, right, do you want a narcissistic leader? Uh, You know, barring a few, (laughs) a few maybe, (laughs) few people, I, I think the vast majority would be like, well, no, I want somebody kind and who's going to, you know, help me out and, and set a good vision and whatever. But we're inexplicably, well, not really inexplicably, I think now more explicably <laughs> drawn to drawn to this quality. And I think for me, the maybe charged nature of the title, right? Why do so many incompetent men become leaders? It starts to feel less charged when you when you look under the hood and see this and go, yeah, well, yeah, that's why. It's because we we promote a lot of the wrong traits and we see a lot of those wrong traits in the male population. And, and I think that it, that it hurts men too, just to be clear, right? Yeah. It hurts men because the men who do not necessarily have or espouse or display those confident narcissistic characteristics charismatic traits and have other traits and are truly competent also don't tend to make it into senior leadership positions. And so that was pretty eye-opening to see as well. Yeah. The point that it's the wrong men who tend to get into leadership was a really powerful point. I like the fact that he says getting more women in leadership is not about lowering our bar for leadership for yeah. women, but actually raising the bar for leadership for men. Yeah. yeah. And generally raising the bar, changing our perspective and promoting the right leaders with the right traits that actually make an impact on the organization as opposed to just one person focusing on their own success. Yeah. One of the things that I really, really love about this book, and this was a personal thing for me, is his take on the... So when I was in college, the there were a couple of gender essentialist books that came out. You Just Don't Understand was on how people use language, and men are from Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> um, and he goes straight at people are from Earth. And... <laughs> <laughs> Um, And this is a pet peeve of mine from the very moment that those books came out because I read them because I was doing gender aware stuff at the time. And those two books came out and they were studies about what currently happens. And they were making causation statements about this is essentialist in the nature of men and women that there are these differences. And there was nothing in the data behind the books that was suggesting that causation Hmm. was there. And so it was this completely, to my mind, spurious correlation. And in fact, there was an article that was published a little bit later called People Are From Earth that looked at the data. And some of it gets referred to in this book that is on everything except for like self-pleasure and leg strength. (laughs) Um, And like one (laughs) other characteristic that has nothing to do with leadership. There's more overlap and sameness between the characteristics of men and women than there is difference. That data just disappears because of how we interpret 
because of the myths and the, the cultural assumptions that we make around what is strong and what are the differences between men and women and, and how we talk about gender. And one of the things that I come back to over and over again is two pieces of data. One is that infant boys cry more than infant girls. Mm. So boys are more sensitive than girls early on. And then boys are trained out of using tears as a form of communication. And in fact, tears are a really, really powerful form of communication. Tears are a way of saying, I don't have any words, but I need help. Right. And right. And so like we have this whole myth about tears at work are bad, but actually tears are a request for community. They're a request for help. And they're a signal that you can pick up that doesn't need to be articulated. So it's actually a really primitive messaging system to a community saying this person needs help. But we train that out of boys, both as a sort of speech action, we train them not to do it. And then we train them not to respond to it with empathy or action. And then we wonder why boys turn into men who have a hard time making friends and who have friends where they punch each other on the shoulder rather than having communication about what matters. And so that's sort of interesting. But the other thing that is interesting in this leadership context is the guy who coined the term alpha male who studies in chimpanzees did a TED talk on the term alpha male because he got upset about how the term has been co-opted by popular culture hmm. because the leader male in a chimpanzee band, yes, they get there by a show of strength. What they do as leaders has a deep impact on how they're treated when they're booted out of power. Hmm. The ones who function as narcissists do not thrive when they're booted out of power and they do not live long after they lose power. The ones that thrive after they have been dethroned functioned while they were leaders as givers of compassion, like consoler in chief is right. the language he uses, and the breaker up of internal fights. Diplomacy and empathy are the defining characteristics of a successful outcome alpha male, which feels right in this land. Oh, absolutely. He brings up the example of the change in leadership at Uber and yeah. how the new leader was described with those same words that you were using, the, the diplomats, the relationship builder, those kinds of things. Yeah. I'm thinking about the conversation that we had with Christine around lead from the outside and about how Stacey Abrams is such a relationship first leader. We had conversation about how looking for what leadership looks like if you don't have access to power it comes in that relationship building. That's how you build coalitions. And so that's another way of looking for who should we be promoting into positions of leadership? Who has been building these coalitions? At the end of the book, one of the things he talks about is some sort of data tracking that you could use for trying to identify who these people are. And network analysis is one of the tools that he brings up. Like who is building those networks? Who is building those relationships? Yeah. Who's taking care of people who's the consoler in chief naturally and why not why not make them the chief and get rid of this notion of commander in chief altogether it let's to your point about infant boys and infant girls you know what if we were to to stop this notion of not only let's stop training that out of boys and and see it as the meaningful message that it is that tears are right and that by the way reminded me of no hard feelings which is a, a yep. book about right i mean because 
they talk about how not only tears, but emotions in general are data. <laughs> They're conveying a message, listen to them instead of training them out of people. Yeah. And what we end up doing is, is not only training that out of boys at a very young age, but those who aren't trained out of it and are boys, um, and, and certainly many women, we then train it out of them later on when they're adults to say, well, if you want to be a successful leader, you got to be this, 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 and, and you can't cry at work and you can't do this and you can't do that. It, it certainly doesn't help. And, and it, I, I felt when I was reading the book that I felt myself kind of nodding and being like, yeah, like, why, do, why don't we actually, <laughs> um, actually promote the people that are, are doing the job that would keep all the rest of us happy and healthy and truly productive instead of promoting the wrong people and then wondering why people aren't happy, healthy, or productive. Yeah. I mean, I think so much about what instructions are out there about managing up. And most of them are about how to deal with a toxic ego above you. And when you think yeah. about middle management and how much of middle management considers their job to be protecting their people from the leadership stuff above them. Yeah. Like, like why? Why? That is so unhealthy. Yeah, for real. Why? And the specific data about the impact to an organization of getting rid of one toxic person as opposed to hiring four really good, competent people kind of threw me for a loop. I mean, yeah, I'm- that it was twice as effective to fire one toxic person as to hire a superstar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that tells you something about the just outsized impact that these folks have. And I think what is, is so mind boggling in a sense is, is how accustomed we've become to this, both from that example of middle management of like, this is my job to protect people. And also just, I mean, I hear it in the everyday vernacular in, in the corporate setting when we're like, yeah, well, that that's just, that's just how VPs are, you know, that's how CEOs are. And we, we just accept it because we're so used to it. And so then when you think about hiring and promotion decisions for future leaders, these are the folks, these toxic folks, many of the men are the ones making the decisions. So the, it, it's no surprise then that the, that it perpetuates, that the cycle continues because we have those folks in charge of hiring and promotion decisions as well. And, and so people who are competent and maybe not particularly confident, not particularly charismatic and not narcissistic, uh, even if they do get hired, right? And, and let's say many of them are women. Um, that's why many of them uh, place themselves out or self-select out before they get to leadership because they look up and start to see that toxicity, start to see themselves not represented there, whether from a gender perspective or otherwise, but themselves, them as a person, what they value, not represented yes. at the top. And so then think, well, it's not for me. And I'm going to go do, do something else. And, you know, more power to them to go do something else, but then we shouldn't be shocked that we don't see more diverse styles um, in, in leadership. Yeah, I'm thinking of an organization that I spent quite a lot of time with where the recruiting team was doing a really, really great job of sourcing candidates at the senior leadership positions that were diverse. And over and over again, there'd be a short list of four or five people that were all qualified for the job. And there would be all but one of them would be diverse in some respect and the person who looked like the existing leadership team got the job and there would be grumbles about this all the time after somebody got one of these positions and looked like everybody else at the top from the rank and file and every single time there was a question about this posed to the leadership the answer was always when it comes down to the end we make the decision based on the best person for the job and we get a diverse pool all the way 
way through. And there's data at the end of this book that's talking about the hiring process that is like when you're comparing people against each other and comparing them to each other, these myths and these instinctive stereotypes play out. And one of the things that is, if not explicit, is implicit in the sort of how do we fix this conversation at the end is if you've got a short list like that, hire the woman. Mm. Like you might as well use that as your criteria. Yeah. So we have not addressed very many of the specifics in the book, but we've referred to a lot of the ideas and a lot of the data and things. Is there anything that people want to make sure we touch on before we move to Thinkaways? Yeah, the last point I just wanted to make was around the fact that these tendencies to reward the toxic behaviors and put those people into positions of leadership and that women and, and other non people, non-standard styles of leadership don't make it up there is kind of one half of it. And I think I just wanted to round it out with the idea that actually then most leaders fail, right? So it's not just the idea that we don't have a representative sample at the top. It's that the people we do have at the top are incompetent and they fail. I mean, I think when we look at, uh, I mentioned US presidents earlier, but I think it could apply to any set of leaders, whether in politics or in business. Why is there this general sense of cynicism and like, well, nothing ever changes and no one's really happy under them and people generally suffer and it all always sucks. It's because the leaders themselves fail. So we're also not setting up even those leaders to be successful in the larger kind of macro yeah. sense. Um, we're certainly setting them to be successful for themselves individually, maybe in a financial sense. But overall, over the course of like, you know, human history, no, they they, they don't succeed. And I think that's just the, the point I wanted to make there. That's a really, really good point that it's so often when we talk about hiring, we talk about getting the right person in the right position. And that's setting the organization up for success. That's setting the people up for success. This is positing because we're putting the wrong people into these positions. We're setting them and our organizations up for failure. Yeah. So do we want to move to Thinkaways? Let's do it. In the book, he says that EQ is the best single measure of people skills. And my think away at an individual level would be to do some self-examination of your EQ. What's the status of your EQ? Where do you have strengths? Where do you have places where you could work on aspects of your EQ? And there are some good assessments out there, like the EQI, that would give you a snapshot of your EQ at that particular time and can give you a lot of data in terms of how do you want to use your EQ. And then at an organizational level, I would also say that there's opportunities to recognize and encourage the EQ of others. Yeah, great. My think away has to do with a couple of don'ts, if you will. <laughs> uh, these two kind of uh, do not behaviors really, really stood out to me. I think one is stop asking women to behave more like incompetent men in order to grow into leadership roles. And notice I'm not saying let's stop asking women to behave more like men. It's it's emphasis on incompetent men. We should stop telling them to, to you know, spend more time on self-promotion or advance your own interests or, or whatnot. It's, it, we're not helping the problem by turning more women into, <laughs> into basically incompetent men. Um, and then similarly, the other kind of do not is let's stop ruling out the men who lack the narcissism that we're somehow so seduced by and drawn to. Let's stop ruling them out. Um, and I think that's just, if we stop doing those, I think that gets us part of the way and is, is kind of the first few steps. Mm, yeah. I'm kind of in the same space as Alyssa 
for thinkaways at this point. I'm in the land of how should leaders be evaluated or potential leaders be evaluated in the hiring or promotion process. One of the tools that I am aware of that is really good at assessing some of the differences between the self-protective behaviors that show up in narcissists and the open and empathetic and collaborative skills that really make for effective leaders is the leadership circle profile. Mm. So I'm sure there are other tools out there, but I know that that one is really good at getting a 360, but also there's a free self-assessment that they have available. Are there places that you could use that kind of assessment in your hiring processes and your promotion decisions? Uh, And what impact might it have to put a little more emphasis on who people are and what are these qualities do they have rather than how well they can tell a story of what they've done in the past. Agreed. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also, be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a Four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.